Our scripture reading this morning is from Galatians. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray together. Father, as we come before your word, we recognize that that your word is not uh, just words on a page that were written by men thousands of years ago that seem to have no relevance to our life, but instead they are your very words to us. And there could be no words that, were, that are more relevant to the way that we live our lives. So, Father, we pray that your Spirit would visit us here this morning and help us to see how powerful your Word affects our life. Help us to see you anew and afresh this morning and be refreshed in the good news of the Gospel. In Christ's name, amen. Um, some of you may know this, but I, and I may have shared it on a Sunday morning before, but uh, uh, if you know me, you know that I almost became an English teacher. For the longest time, uh, I wanted to, to teach English, probably at the high school level, because I loved the literature part of English. I couldn't stand the grammar part, and I wondered how I was going to teach that. But for the longest time, I just loved literature, and I wanted to teach that. In fact, where I went to college, they didn't have... Uh, an English major or a minor, but I took so many English classes that the English professors uh, gave me an honorary, really a laughing honorary, but an honorary English minor uh, for my work there. But really, the, the thing that made me like English so much is that I always had great English teachers. And one in particular I will probably never forget. He was like John Keating's character on the Dead Poet Society, if you've ever seen that movie before. He loved English and he was passionate about it. And he encouraged us to write really well, to not just read, but to write really well. And one of the things that he told us is one of the keys to good writing is repetition. He used to always say, repetition is good. And that good writing finds really creative ways to repeat the same message that you want to get across over and over and over again until it really sticks. Well, really, the letter of Galatians that we've been looking at is Paul's attempt to repeat the message of the gospel over and over again to the people that he is writing to. You see, they were people that he had led to Christ at some point. They were people who he had brought into a church and started a brand new church, but they were also people that he learned had abandoned the gospel. 
Once he had left town, they had forgotten the message. They had walked away from the truth of the message of the gospel. And in fact, they had embraced what Paul called another gospel, which it wasn't really even any gospel at all. So what the letter of Galatians is, is it's Paul's attempt to repeat over and over again the message of the gospel because they, were, they had forgotten it, but also because they were no longer living in light of the message of the gospel. Last week we looked at an overview of the book. This week we're going to look at kind of the theological punch behind the book of Galatians. And then the next two weeks after this, we're going to look at how this theological truth that he's about to share has incredible application on the way you and I live our lives every single day. Martin Luther, who wrote a lot about the book of Galatians, said this. He said, this book, or what is contained in it, is the very truth of the gospel. It is also the principle of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. This morning, what I'd like to do is to look at why the message is so important, why we need to to live our lives in light of it, and why we need to beat it into our heads continually. The first thing I'd like us to see or, or observe, which is really kind of intuitive or clear to all of us if we really think about the world we live in, and that is that we live in a world and in, and in a culture that is very achievement-oriented. We live in an achievement-oriented culture. I don't know if you pay attention at all to the, to the psychological world or the, or the studies of psychology that are out there, but what's interesting about the psychological world is, is they come up with some sort of new addiction, it seems like, every other month. And just a couple years ago, they started talking about this thing called achievement addiction. It's people who are addicted to achievement and the rush that comes from achieving things. Susan Babel in 2011 wrote this about the achievement addiction. She said this, executives with adrenaline addiction are the ones always pecking away at their blackberries during meetings, talking on their cell phones during every five minute break from those meetings and checking email late at night. They go from meeting to meeting to meeting with no time in between for reflection or thought. They're always overwhelmed. They're adrenaline junkies that seem to have a constant need for urgency, even panic, in order to get them through the day. They cannot grasp the race driver's motto, you have to, go, you have to slow down to go fast. Instead, they keep their foot on the pedal at full throttle convinced that any deceleration is a lost opportunity. Now, you may know people like this, or you may resemble people like this. I think sometimes I resemble this at some point. So we know what it looks like. We know that it's everywhere around us, and we know that it doesn't seem to be getting any better. It only seems to be getting worse. Most of you know that I, uh, I've had the privilege over the past really 14 years of, of coaching at a high school level. I coach cross country and I actually just wrapped up my 14th season coaching cross country. 
And what I've noticed is every year it's harder for our athletes to make it out to practice. We make showing up to practice a high priority, but every year it seems harder and harder to get kids to make practice a priority and to to show up at practice. Now you would think it has everything to do with them being teenagers and being lazy or, or wanting to just hang out with their girlfriends and boyfriends, but you would be wrong. They can't make it out to practice because they are incredibly overcommitted and intensely stressed because of it. They're involved in SAT preps, in AP study groups, in student council elections, in ROTC drill teams, in steel drum band, and the list goes on and on as to all these extracurricular activities that they're involved in. So this season I pulled one of these chronic absent athletes aside and I said, what's going on? How come you're missing practice so much? And he gave me a laundry list about all the things that he was doing that made it so hard for him to make it up to practice. And I just looked at him and said, so why are you doing all this stuff? Why are you so committed? Why are you, why are you involved in so many things? And he looked at me and said, coach, I got to get my resume good. I said, well, what do you mean by that? He said, well, I have to market myself well to universities that are out there. So I have to build my resume by being involved in all of these different things. So here is a 17-year-old kid incredibly stressed about the nature of his life because he feels the pressure to build his resume. It wasn't anything that anybody taught him. It was simply the cultural air that he breathes in day in and day out. Jennifer Gresham, who's a a scientist and a blogger who talks about these things, she writes about achievement. And she says this, "If If there was any indicator of what constituted success, the definition seems to come from everywhere and nowhere at once. Your GPA, then the prestige of the university you get admitted to, then it's your salary, then promotions, and even the zip code and the square footage of where you reside. She talks about the nature of achievement in this in the world. She actually credits it to the mid-1800s and the self-help movement that believed that heaven helps those people who help themselves. And in so doing, we become like the mountain climber who climbs up and conquers a new mountain, but all of his joy is gone once he gets to the top of the mountain because as soon as he gets to the top of the mountain, he observes another bigger mountain that he has to achieve. So all the success and achievement that he may feel, all the joy he may feel of conquering that mountain is all gone because a greater achievement is now on the horizon. This is part of the culture we live in and this orientation has been around far longer than just the mid-1800s. It's been around really ever since the beginning, ever since man fell in the garden. Ever since our pride and desire for control took over and we became obsessed with achieving in in our world. Now what what makes this so challenging for us, what makes this so difficult is sometimes we take this achievement addiction or this achievement orientation into our matters of faith and how we relate to a living God. You know, one of the most profound and simplest questions that everyone asks themselves when it comes to the nature of faith is how can I, how can you and I be made right in our relationship with God? 
How do we enter into a relationship with the living and most high God? How can we be in a relationship with him that not just experiences the blessings of knowing him or experiences blessing in this life, but ultimately will experience that final blessing with him for all of eternity? How can we be in relationship with God? And what the Old Testament does is if you read the Old Testament, you know it begins to set the table for us to be able to answer that most profound question of how we can be in a relationship with God. And a lot of it has to do with the law. If you read the Old Testament, there's lots of laws and stipulations in the Old Testament. And in a way, what God is saying to us is if you want to be in a relationship with me, then you have to pay attention to this law. What God is saying about all these rules and all these stipulations is that one way to be in relationship with Him is to keep this law. It is to achieve keeping this law in its entirety. See, in the Old Testament, God gave this law to his people. He gave it to Moses on Mount Sinai. It's, it's really hundreds of laws. It's hundreds of stipulations that, that deal with all the external practices of, of life, but also deal with the internal heart and the motives that motivate us throughout life as well. And what God wanted his people to understand and what he wants us to understand too is that one of the ways to God is by perfectly obeying All of these laws. He says throughout the Old Testament that just to break one law, if we were successful in keeping all the laws but only only broke it once, then we would be guilty of actually breaking all of the law in its entirety. And to break just one, just one of those laws meant that you and I would stand before a just and holy God as condemned, awaiting the judgment that we deserve because of our sin. You see, what the law does is it sets that achievement bar very high. In fact, it sets the achievement bar at perfection. Because after all, we are dealing with a just and holy God who can only have perfection in his presence. So to look at our lives and to look at the demands that the law places upon us should really drive us to despair of our own ability to be in relationship with God. But what so many of us do is so many of us do the opposite. We look at the law and we think about ourselves and somehow we deceive ourselves into thinking that we can earn our way into a relationship with God. When in reality, if it, are, if it is up to us, our situation is utterly hopeless because we simply cannot reach God through our achievements. We cannot reach Him through our efforts. It has to come in some other way. But our default response in our pride and our desire to control our lives is to somehow find a way to earn our way back to God. We buy into what one commentator said is the fearful delusion 
that if only we pull up our socks a bit higher and try a bit harder, then we will succeed in winning back our own salvation. If you read our passage this morning, and if you read through the the entire book of Galatians, you'll see that it comes back to one word constantly. And that word is called justified. In the Greek, it's called dikaios, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And whenever you see the term, you should think about it in legal terms, because it really is a legal term that was used in the courts during the New Testament time in which Paul and the Gospels were written. And to be justified in one of these ancient courts would be to be declared righteous or to be declared innocent of a crime that you were brought before the court on account of. The opposite of being declared righteous or the opposite of being declared justified would be to be declared condemned before this court. And what Paul wants us to see is that because of the law, you and I stand condemned before God. And no matter how hard we try, no matter how much we achieve, we can never make ourselves right before God. And it's why Paul says all throughout the book of Galatians, by works of the law, no one will be justified. No one will ever be made right before God through their own achievement. So then it begs the question, if that's true, then how can we be made right before God? How can we be acquitted of that which we most deserve? How can we be legally declared as justified before God the Father when the reality is we stand before him condemned? And the answer to those questions comes at the very core of the message of the gospel. Because what Paul tells us in the book of Galatians is that salvation, your salvation, my salvation, comes only in resting in Christ's achievement rather than resting in our own achievements. In our passage, in verse 16, it says, Yet you know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You see, being declared right before God doesn't come through our achievement. It only comes through faith in Jesus Christ and what he achieved or accomplished on our behalf. It, not comes, it doesn't come in resting in our achievement or resting in our resume, but resting in his achievements on our behalf. And faith is the means by which all of this happens. Because by faith, we are made right in our relationship with God. Imagine it as this great cosmic courtroom in which we are brought before God to give an account of our achievements and what we've done in our lives and we immediately realize that because of what what we've done, we deserve to stand before God as condemned. But in faith and by the nature of faith in what Christ has done, we no longer have to fear being declared as condemned. Instead, we can be declared as righteous. 
we can be declared as justified. And at that moment of declaration, when we are declared as justified, all the goodness and the perfection and the obedience of Jesus Christ is credited to our account. And all the sin and the condemnation that you and I deserve are taken from us and instead are placed in Christ's account on our behalf. By faith, this happens in our hearts because by faith we experience the graciousness of God. You see, all of this is not because we deserved it or not because we achieved it or not because we earned it. It's simply because God has chosen to be gracious to us. It's why Paul says in Galatians 6, But far be it from me to boast in anything except the cross of Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified and I to the world. You see, what Paul realized is in that courtroom before God, he had nothing of his own to boast to God about. He had nothing that was a part of his resume or a part of his achievement that was worth changing God's mind. Instead, the only way he could stand before God is to boast in the goodness and the achievements of Christ done On his behalf. By faith we are united to Jesus Christ. We are are joined to him. And no one can ever take that relationship away from us. We are given his achievements as if they are our own. And we never have to fear that those achievements will be taken away from us. We never have to fear that God as judge will choose to retry us. We have been declared righteous. We have been declared right. And no longer do we have to fear the condemnation that we deserve. Paul says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And he says these powerful words. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, Paul could say that because he recognized that he who was righteous became condemned so that you and I who were condemned could be declared righteous and justified in the sight of God. And by faith, we receive this gift from God. Not through our achievement, not through working really hard, but simply by trusting in him through this gift of faith that he gives us in which we rest not in our achievements, but instead we rest in his. And when we do that, our conscience, our conscience the, the consciousness that's inside of us that sometimes plagues us and burdens us can only and truly find rest. And we can revel in the peace that we have in a relationship with God. Isn't it beautiful? What God offers to us in this relationship. What God offers to us in the gift of grace. But no matter how beautiful it is. No matter how captured we are by the good news of the gospel and its beauty. We so often have a difficult time living in light of it. 
And that's what Paul recognized in Galatians. He saw in them something that we struggle with as well. And that is that we all have a tendency to turn back. To turn back into living as if we were made right before God based on our achievement rather than based on his grace. We forget what Paul so powerfully says in chapter 3 that the righteous shall live by faith. You see, Paul was frustrated with Galatians because though they were made right before God through faith, they were returning back to living as if their achievements is what made them right before God. And by doing it, they had forfeited living in light of the gospel. And you and I do this all the time as well. And when we do it, we forfeit all the blessings that come from a relationship with Jesus Christ. And instead, we're we're beset with all sorts of anxieties in life. We're beset with inferiority complexes or inferiority complexes. We're beset with anxieties that plague us in life. And why do all those things come? They come because we're not living in light of the truth of the gospel. And when we do that, we lose all the joy and all the peace that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, what's remarkable is how technology has changed. We were laughing about this in small group last week, about how over the past, I guess, 10, 15 years, how technology has really changed our lives in unique ways. And we were laughing about how we can remember when we had our first email address and how cool that was. Or the first time that we discovered that we could, we could get on the internet and find information at our fingertips. But one of the most remarkable things that technology has done to us is it's given us these amazing phones that aren't just made for us to talk anymore. They're made for us to, to check the weather and to check our calendars and to search the web and do remarkable things that we can do. But one, I remember distinctly one of the most amazing things that impressed me about these phones that are out now is, is the, the reversible camera feature to our phones. I'm sure all of you have seen this before, and I can remember this came out a couple of years, where you had the ability to not just take pictures with your phone, but you could hit a button And it would reverse the camera so that you could now take a picture of yourself. And of course, when this happened, it gave birth to all sorts of other things, like the selfie movement that is out there all the time nowadays, which has become such a a huge movement now. You log on to to CNN and you, uh, you see that one of the top stories is the top 10 selfie photos of the week. And You sit there and you think, is this really newsworthy that's out there that we're doing these selfie photos? But the reality is that in some ways, our hearts become like those cameras. Because being right, being made right with God means looking outside of ourselves to trust in Christ for our lives. And really, the Christian life is all about looking outside of ourselves at Jesus Christ. But sadly and sad, instead, our hearts become like those cameras. Our hearts become turned inside. They become turned in on ourselves because our tendency is to focus on ourselves. 
Our tendency to think, our tendency is to think that our salvation is all about our own value and all about our own achievement. When faith tells us that it's all about looking to Christ and resting upon Him, not just for our salvation, but for all of our lives. So the question that I have to ask myself, the question that you and I have to ask ourselves whenever we reflect on the gospel, is are we living on the hamster wheel of achievement where we're simply looking for the next mountain to climb in order to satisfy ourselves? Have we become slaves to achieving not only the approval of God, but achieving the approval of other people that are in our lives? Do we need their approval to make our lives work? Are we still ultimately working for the approval of God in our lives? Because if so, the gospel would tell us to give up the delusion. To give up the delusion that we could ever earn our way back to God and instead look to Christ who did all the achieving for us and by faith trust in him to make this life work. By faith to trust in him to be made right before God the Father and when we do that we become united to him in faith and experience his grace in a way that we may have never experienced it before.